Hi, welcome to True Creeps, where the stories are true and the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore to the possibly plausible paranormal, to horrifying history, to tense and terrible true crime, and everything else that goes bump in the night. We're your hosts, Amanda, and I'm Lindsay, and we want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, everybody. Today, we're going to be talking about the crimes of Daniel LaPlante. And they have a very interesting kind of thread, I thought. Had you heard of him before we did the research for today? Not of him specifically, but of the crime, yes. When we were researching how we found him, because we were looking at cases where people were in the walls. Mm -hmm. Hint, hint. Hint, hint. So we're going to start with LaPlante's early life. Then we're going to get into his crimes. So Daniel LaPlante was born in Townsend, Massachusetts in 1970. He was unfortunately sexually and psychologically abused by several of the adults in his life. LaPlante's father was responsible for most of the physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, which occurred regularly. This guy had just like a really shitty start to his life because it's going to get pretty bad. Yeah. One of the interesting descriptors of his home is that there were a bunch of abandoned vehicles all over the property that didn't run. It's kind of weird. Yeah. LaPlante was still a minor the first time he was arrested. And at school, he wasn't faring much better. He struggled because he was dyslexic and he didn't have many friends. One of the articles that we read for research for this episode, there were some comments from LaPlante's neighbors who said that they had tried to talk to him on the school bus, but it made them very uncomfortable. And the whole situation was uncomfortable. Another person said that she was in his first grade class and that he was creepy even then. School officials urged him to see a psychologist because he had abnormal behavior, poor hygiene, he gave very little effort in his appearance, and he didn't appear to want to improve it either. LaPlante did see a psychiatrist, and he was diagnosed with ADHD. This is where it gets pretty bad, too. His psychiatrist began to sexually abuse LaPlante during their sessions, and this happened for at least a year. So fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. Someone that's supposed to help you and then makes everything worse. So... He started breaking into homes near where he lived, and he started to steal their belongings. When he was 15, he started leaving behind items when he took things. He would also slightly move items around when he broke into the homes. So it wasn't super apparent when the person came back, but yet he moved a bunch of stuff. Yeah. What this really reminded me of was the Golden State Killer. Yes. Because he started with burglaries and he started with weird things that he was doing in people's houses that it's not just that he could get in. It's that he could get in and move stuff. And that sometimes he was coming, he was breaking into the same places numerous times because he was like bringing stuff back sometimes, sometimes putting something new there. And so Mm -hmm. it seems more like psychological torment than just being burglarized. So as always, there's tangents at the end that we're here but we're going to scoot them on back. But we were talking, one of the things I had mentioned a moment ago was that this reminded me of the Golden State Killer who started burglarizing people. And he was known as the Vesalia Ransacker at that point because that's what he was doing so much that people were like, we're experiencing this. And then he escalated worse and worse and worse. And he was a cat burglar too. Mm -hmm. So not surprisingly, because we're talking about the Golden State Killer and how he reminds us of this, we're going to talk about the escalation of LaPlante's crimes. And what's really interesting is that we know that he burglarized people 
We know that he did it before this next interaction that we're going to talk about. But this first interaction of his escalation, there's two stories. There's the story that is widely held to be true. But there's also this kind of spinoff urban legend. When we were researching, at first, that's what we kept seeing. And there's different names. There's different (laughs) uh, details. There's different motivations. There's different lead up. And so we're going to include the urban legend first because we thought that that was really interesting. And then we're going to talk about the, the actual story of what happened. So in 1986, LaPlante got the phone number and address for the Andrews family. And it's believed that he may have done this partially because he had burglarized that home previously and had been in the home. And so LaPlante started to call the house and he was talking to the daughters. And he talked to one of the daughters, Annie, more than the other. And the other sister's name was Jessica. In 1986, LaPlante called Annie to ask if she would go on a date with him. And he told her, like, when they had originally started talking on the phone, he had said, oh, I got your number from a friend. We go to school together. But in this version of the story, I don't think they actually did go to school together. It was just he needed a reason to know her other than I've been in your home. Yeah. Yeah. And so she said yes. They ended up going on a date. An important thing to note is that during these conversations, like he portrayed himself as good looking and popular, blonde and well-educated. And he really wasn't any of these things. He wasn't considered incredibly attractive. He barely had friends. He also had darker hair. And so not surprisingly, when he shows up for this date at their house, Annie's really surprised because this isn't the guy who she seemed to have talked to. And he looks outright disheveled and which kind of matches what we had talked about earlier, because, you know, we were saying that his teachers were thinking that like he wasn't having good hygiene. He wasn't having kind of like pride in his appearance. And at this point, he's just 16 years old. Yeah. So Annie and LaPlante went to a local fair together. And after about an hour, Annie made excuses to go home. Fair. So during their date, Annie told him that her mother had died of cancer. And she mentioned that she lived with her sister and her father. And her father's name was Brian. Again, her sister's name is Jessica. So during this conversation where she's sharing with him, he starts to get uncomfortably interested and the details surrounding her mother's death. He starts questioning how she felt when her mother died and asking her the same question in different ways. He also wanted to know how much her mother had suffered. And again, it's asking in like different ways over and over again. And so she's increasingly uncomfortable. So the fact that she lasted an hour to me is like wild. Yeah, yeah. I say it lasted an hour. This is a fictional story. But we're acting as though it's real as we're telling it. So Annie did not enjoy her time in this date. So she ghosted him afterwards. All of this happens. And a few days later, Annie and Jessica were missing their mom. So they had a seance in their basement to try to talk to her and nothing happened. But that same night, they started hearing a knocking on their bedroom wall. So then they were like, well, maybe the seance did work. And they started talking to their mom. And so they would ask questions and then there would be a knock in response. So they would ask a question, like a yes or no question. And it would be like, knock once for yes, knock twice for no. And Annie and Jessica started doing this regularly. Sometimes it would be them initiating the conversations, but oftentimes the knocking would just start randomly. And it would happen like at all different times, including when they would be trying to sleep. And they're like, it's totally fine. We'll talk to our mom. Yeah, like, Mom, I have school tomorrow. Can you let me sleep, please? Ugh. Okay. That's unsettling in itself, right? So let's make it worse. Then some strange stuff started to happen around the house. Things started to go missing. 
Sometimes they would just show up in a different place after it disappeared, which sounds paranormal, right? Furniture also began getting rearranged. Reminds me of all the hotels we've talked about lately. Yeah. When also, like, I think it's interesting here that, like, in this version of events, he's not just subtly moving it. He's full on moving chairs across rooms and stuff like that. Right. But they think it is their mother. Right. Mom's just rearranging as she does. So Annie and Jessica began to suspect that they're talking to maybe a demon instead of their mother because it didn't rearrange like their mom would, right? So the girl's father, Brian, thought that the girls were just making it up, right? They're making the knocking sounds themselves, and they're the ones moving the furniture and, you know, moving around the items. How pissed would you be if you were like, hello, parent, we are being haunted. And they were like, stop fucking around. Like, of all the weird pranks to play, this seems like a very specific one. Seriously, my mom did this to us once. Your mom did a fake haunting to you? No, but she thought we were making shit up. And she even tells people about it now. She's like, I just thought that they were being silly and like trying to stay up past their bedtime. And we're like, Mom, our room is haunted. And she's like, aha, you're so funny. Like, go to bed. I wonder if it's easier to believe that like kids are being silly than you're being haunted. It is. I'm sure it is. But yeah, when we moved out, she finally saw it. And she's like, I'm so sorry. I remember her like apologizing going, I saw it too. I'm sorry. Well, that's good. Not great. Not great. So one night, Jessica and Annie were at home alone, and they were sitting in a room in the front of their home. They began to hear knocking, but this time it was coming from their basement. So they did what any kid would do. They grabbed some knives from the kitchen and went down into the basement. I would not be going down into the basement, kid or adult. When I hear a weird sound, I get someone else because I'm no fighter. I mean, I could probably defend myself if needed by from an intruder, given assuming that they are unarmed. But I'm not going into my basement with a knife, picking a fight with whatever's knocking on the walls. Mm-mm. Well, I'm not going in the basement in general. You're going to get trapped down there by whatever is down there. I'm in the basement right now. No. No, if you heard knocking, though, you're not going to be like, well, let's go explore. Like, you'd be like, bye. I will tell you, it was a few months ago, I heard knocking in my house, and I was, no, terrified. And I heard knocking, and I heard voices. And I called Ben, and I was like, I just want you to be on the phone with me, because I'm going upstairs, and I hear someone walking around. And I hear knocking and I hear voices. And I I went upstairs and like I put him in my pocket so that like I could I was hands hands ready, hands ready. Of course. So I, I go upstairs and <laughs> I could still hear the knocking and I still hear the voices. And I walk into my living room. Moo is laying on the remote control. She has turned on the television. Lenore is in the litter box, just fucking rocking that wall because we have them in little enclosures. She's just fucking scratching the side out of like the hell out of the side of it. So Lenore is making the knocking sound. Moo is sat on the remote control and they have worked together to terrify me. How lovely of them. How lovely of them. I just mean what I think is like if you hear it in the basement, in my head, what's going to happen is you're going to walk down there. You're going to take three steps away from the stairs and you're going to turn around and whatever fucking scary thing is down there is going to be blocking your way to the stairs. And then you're dead. You just die right there for no reason. Just die. Fair. I feel like there are two types of basements. There are 
basements. And there's a basement like we have. We have a rancher. The downstairs is a full footprint of the upstairs. So we have like a bar, another living room, a laundry room, a big office, bathroom. Like it's a fully lit, finished space. There's no like unfinished portions. But when we're talking about basements, my logic is like my childhood basement where like the light was not a switch, it's like a pull string at the bottom of the <laughs> stairs. And like when you're walking down, the steps have no back. So there's like reach and grab your ankle abilities and it's suspiciously dark. You're thinking like the conjuring home? I'm telling look, that how ha- the house that I grew up in was incredibly fucking haunted. And so like the basement was a terrifying place. But that's the basement that I'm imagining here for no reason in particular. Well, I just don't like that you won't be able to, like, get out any other way. I know some basements have, like, an extra door that'll take you up or a window even. It's pretty common that they'll have an exit themselves. Like, some do, some don't. But I would say, like, I don't know. I would guess 50-50. I just feel it's the same thing to me as, like, running upstairs away from something. Agreed. You know, like, running downstairs, you're going to get trapped and you're going to die immediately. Yeah, if you... You run out that door. If there is a threat in your house... Leave your house. If, yeah, if you can, you leave the house. You don't. Yeah, obviously. Like, if, even if you can't, leave your house. <laughs> ghost, become a ghost if you must. Like, you're like, if you can, leave your house. Anyway, they're going down to the basement. We're reeling it back in. These girls go down to the basement, something I would never do. And they bring knives because, of course, they did. Mm-hmm. When they got down there, they saw, I'm in your room. Come find me written in a red substance that looked a lot like blood on one of the basement walls. And so this is what prompted them to finally just run from the house because they were terrified. Great. I'm glad they didn't go find whatever wrote that. Right. Because sometimes in movies, they always do it. I'm like, I'm not looking. Right. I'm not going to find out. It's not for me. When I first read this, that's what I thought was going to happen next because they grabbed the knives. They were like, yeah, we're brave. And then now I feel like knife in hand in another version in my head of the story, they went into the room. But anyways, when their father, Brian, came home, they told him what happened and he went to go check it out. And the message that was written was written in ketchup, which that grosses me out. I hate the smell of ketchup. Can I tell you that? I hate it. One of my biggest questions here is, was it a squirt and finger paint situation or did they use the (laughs) bottle to like write it? Because that would be a very thick letter and it would gloop a lot. So I could see how it could be drippy. I don't know. Yeah. We've gone on a lot of tangents. As always, it's at the end. Yes. Yes. Look, you may have heard some stuff. Maybe maybe some of our catch up talk got stayed in episode proper. (laughs) Otherwise, we we had a lot to say about catch up at the end. We really did. I didn't think that that was going to happen there. That was the least of this episode. We really, really did. I didn't either. Who knows? You never know what's going to just set us off down a path. It's unknown. And it's going to get worse, right? Like, it's going to keep happening. Okay. So, we left off at ketchup. (laughs) Brian thought that Jessica and Annie were acting out and that they had themselves written that message as well. He took the girls to counseling because he thought it was a sign that they were struggling to cope with the death of their mother. Here's my thing. The things that were happening inside of the house, they were like, Dad, something weird is happening. Okay, maybe. But when they are running from the house terrified and like going to a neighbor's house, that feels like a bit much for a prank. 
you know? Right. Especially, like, if I was going to lie about something like that, like, I would do it in his room, not, like, the basement where he might not see it, you know? That's fair. Yeah. But so, a few weeks later, the girls heard the knocking on one of the walls in Annie's bedroom. They left the room, and they returned to see that another message had showed up after they walked out. And it said, I'm back. Find me if you can. So again, the girls ran from the house to a neighbor's and they called their father who came home. The neighbor's like, come on, get this together. Yeah. And so he's at like work. He comes home and he's annoyed. And he's like, I'm just going to go walk in the house and prove you that no one's there. I'll be back. You know, he's like, I'll go search it because they're upset and acting like someone's writing with ketchup on the walls. And so rather than finding an empty house, Brian found that the house was worse than that they had explained to him, right? Because what they saw was ketchup writing on a wall. But he comes in to the house is kind of ransacked, like furniture strewn about. Things are just in disarray. So now he's like, okay, if all of this was something that they saw, they would have said that because they've been telling me everything, right? Why would they leave the fact that the house is all in disarray? If they knew that. Right. So he's like, "Okay, maybe something is happening now, which. okay, great, great. Glad you're on board. Okay, so Brian sees the ransacked house is going through it and goes to Annie's room because that's where they said the message was. And he sees that there's another message written on the wall and it says, marry me. Nope. They don't like it. And as he's taking this in, he notices that there's a figure standing on the opposite side of the room. Nope. And this figure is is staring at him, by the way. This figure is a teenage boy wearing a blonde wig, one of his deceased wife's wedding dresses. In some version of the story, it's her wedding dress and some of his wife's makeup. This figure is also holding a hatchet and it's Daniel LaPlante. So Brian and LaPlante begin to fight. And then suddenly LaPlante just disappears. Brian calls the police, which feels pretty fair. So when they arrived, they searched the house and they eventually find LaPlante in the house. In particular, they found that there was a built-in cabinet in the house and that there was a hidden crawl space inside of it. And that that cabinet slash crawl space was in Annie's bedroom. After LaPlante was removed from the scene, law enforcement began to do a more thorough search. And that's when they found that LaPlante had created tunnels from that original crawl space all around the Andrews home. And that there were even peepholes in the walls so that he could see Annie in every room of the house. Ugh. Law enforcement believed that he had been planning on Annie and Jessica seeing him, not Brian. Fair. Yeah. Oh, oh. All I think of is like Airbnbs with this happening. <laughs> I don't know why. Oh, yeah. I mean, you you <laughs> know, you know, that was in my head. Like, I'm ruined at this. So that's our urban legend story. That is not to say that there is not some pretty big overlap in it. There's some like dramatization in this version. But there's a lot of overlap. And we're going to we're going to talk about the real story in a second. And it's actually that of the Bowen family. And just as a note, we trust this is the credible version because there's law enforcement who's talked about it. And they've actually been interviewed on networks like A&E. And they corroborate events and say the names of people and such. So that's how we get to this being the credible version. Right. So in the spring of 1986, Daniel LaPlante called Tina Bowen to see if she would like to go on a date with him. He said that he had gotten her number from a friend, and she said yes, and they went out. From what we understand, she knew who he was before they went out, so that's a little different from the other story. Tina and LaPlante went out before Easter break, 
And when they returned, some of Tina's friends told her that there was a pending rape charge against LaPlante. So she's like, okay, never mind. And she stopped talking to him. So terrifyingly, LaPlante started breaking into the Bowen family home in the fall of that same year. So just a few months later. Then strange stuff began happening around the home. The TV channel would randomly be changed. I just want to say nowadays, that's not as scary. I don't know. I think that if I was like watching something and I left the room and came back and it was off and it kept happening, I'd be like, what the fuck is going on? I would just think that one of the neighbors has like the Roku app that has been here and used our um, Wi-Fi before, like or one of like the neighborhood kids that have come over to play. I have no neighborhood kids coming into my home. It would be weird if I did. Well, sometimes they go into your mom's (laughs) house. We could take that out. It just made me. Well, laugh. now I have to say it. Now I have to say it because it's going to go at the end. So another strange thing that was happening is things started to go missing from around the house. Sometimes they would show up in a different place after they disappeared. Which again, I always think ghost. Also, milk was drank by someone, but like I, it wasn't them. I guess I was so curious about like how they were tracking milk consumption. Was it just like, did you finish the milk? And then the other person was like, no, I didn't. And it's like. I just think of someone like keeping track. Who's tracking milk consumption this much? Yeah, like <laughs> take their permanent marker. Like with liquor bottles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but with milk? Okay, okay. Bottles of alcohol in the home were being emptied or drank. Well, I could see like either one. That fact makes me think like if you were not believing it was your kids, like that might be a reason that I was like, no, you're literally drunk right now. Yeah. But hmm, I don't know. And just like the other story, furniture was being rearranged. And then there were even messages on the walls. Some were written in ketchup. Now you know how we feel about ketchup. And others were in mayo. I'm trying not to gag. I'm actively like ketchup. I'm judgmental, but mayo just like disgusting to me. Ew, ew. And just just reading that made my stomach turn like and I knew it was coming up again. You know, I know. Same. Like, I was, like, about to gag, and I'm like, I knew this. I don't understand how you get mayo to stick to your wall to make a message. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about it. (laughs) I can't. (laughs) Lindsay's dying now. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I can, you know how, like, (sighs) you know what's funny, though, is we could be, like, messages were in blood, and just, like, read it, no problem. Oh, Yeah. Talk about condiments we don't like and we're fucking gone. (laughs) Something's wrong with us. Okay. So the messages were things like, come and find me. And also, marry me. This is the worst marriage proposal I've ever heard. Like a mayo marriage proposal is the worst (laughs) marriage proposal that has ever existed. Like, what the fuck? Nope, nope, nope. That's an auto no. So we talked about... Tina, her sister's name, the real sister, was Karen. And then Frank is their father in the Bowen household. So Frank believed that his daughters were playing pranks and everything that was happening had been done by them. So the situation came to a head when Tina and Karen returned home from school on December 8th of 1986. What they found was that it appeared that someone had used the toilet after they had left. Presumably, that means that they were they had left the house last. You know, like their dad left for work, then they went to school and they're like, something's strange here, right? Like they yeah. point, they're like, dad, like, who, who do you think did this? 
So Frank came home. When Frank came home, he searched the home. And that's when he found LaPlante, who was hiding in a wardrobe. He had his face painted and he was wearing a mask. He was also holding a hatchet. LaPlante then forced Frank, Tina, and Karen into one of the bedrooms. And then he just kind of disappeared. Tina was able to get out of one of the bedroom windows. And she went to a neighbor to call the police. They came, couldn't find LaPlante. Two days later, they found LaPlante hiding in the Bowens' cellar. (sighs) After he was arrested, law enforcement searched the house again. And that's when they realized that they thought that he had been living there for a few weeks, which, uh, uncomfortable. But what's interesting that is, is that in this real version of the story, he was hiding in a triangular space in the wall behind the bathroom. And there's actually a sketch from Officers Lane and Bazanson of that hiding spot. And we'll share that on social media. Yeah. And so, like, it's basically a four foot triangle. It's not big. It's it's very small. They thought he was living in that space. That's awful. I don't like it. I also, the idea of like in the bathroom, fuck no. Literally, fuck no. Both the urban legend and the true story end with LaPlante being apprehended and then being released on bail in October of 1987. And so after he's released, he immediately starts to burglarize homes again. And one of these homes is 39 Elm Street, which is the home of the Pindell family. And he broke into it on October 14th of 1987. While he was there, he stole cash and two 22 caliber guns with their holster. LaPlante's stepfather found one of the guns in LaPlante's laundry a few weeks later. He confronted LaPlante and he said that he had gotten the gun a year before, which is weird because I feel like at this point, like he's a 16 or 17 year old kid with a gun. I don't care when you've got it. You should not have it. Right, right. So Michael Pulaski and LaPlante's brother, Stephen, said they saw LaPlante with hundreds of dollars in cash around this time and that he didn't have a job where it would have made sense for him to have that money. And by the way, Michael was one of Stephen's good friends. The Pindell home and LaPlante home were about a quarter mile apart, and the two houses were connected by a trail out back. So very, very close. Yeah. So let's go to another family now, the Gustafson family. LaPlante broke into their home on November 16th of 1987 between 11.30 p.m. and 3.30 a.m. And what he took was two cable boxes, a TV cable remote, a cordless phone, and coins from a silver dollar collection. What a weird array of items. It's weird stuff. Also, knowing that you have to pay rent on those stupid fucking cable boxes makes me like more fr- <laughs> and, the, and the remotes. It's like, oh, man, now I have to pay some fee and I can't watch TV. Feels like an inconvenient annoyance. I'm acting like I understand how cable TV technology worked the year I was born, by the way. It sounds like you're an expert. Cable TV expert, 1987ologist, baby. You sounded confident. Oh, So, Stephen, Daniel LaPlante's brother, would later tell law enforcement that his brother had put the cordless phone and cable box in Stephen's tool cabinet because he didn't want their parents to find it. Stephen also saw his brother, Daniel LaPlante, with the silver dollar coins. So, the Gustafsson home was only a half mile from their home. On December 1st of 1987, LaPlante broke into the home of the Gustafsons again. And while he was there inside the home, Priscilla Gustafsson and one of their two children, William, who was just five years old at the time, came home. What's really interesting is that when we talked about that article earlier, one of the comments said that the reason why he particularly targeted this family 
and why he acted how he did was because Priscilla had been tutoring Laplante for his GED and that Laplante had become obsessed with her and that Priscilla had thought that Laplante was stalking her and that he had broken into her house several times. So she ended the tutoring arrangement. But I couldn't find that anywhere else. But I was like, that's a very interesting fact. And a lot of people from this area were commenting on this thread. So I was like, it's interesting that it's kind of behind the scenes info that you wouldn't normally see. I wouldn't think that they said that they had a relationship to either the Laplante family or Priscilla. Yeah. Yeah. I love reading those because you always get such weird stuff from like, I knew someone or, you know, you don't really know if it's true, but there's some stuff that you're like, okay, that would actually make a lot more sense. Exactly. So Laplante would later say that he was surprised by them coming home and had considered fleeing out the window, but he didn't. He forced Priscilla and William to go into the bedroom at gunpoint. Once they were in there, he put William in the closet. He then tied Priscilla to the bed and gagged her with one of his own socks. Then, this gets even worse, Laplante sexually assaulted Priscilla and then shot her multiple times. Terrible. Like, truly, truly fucking terrible. Yeah. So then he took William out of the closet and into the bathroom nearest that bedroom, and he drowned him. That's so sad. As Laplante was about to leave, the other Gustafsson child, eight-year-old Abigail, came home after getting off the school bus. When she came in, he drowned her in the downstairs bathroom. It's horrific. So, disgustingly, Laplante would leave this scene, and then he ended up going to his niece's birthday party that night. One of the things that always fascinates me when we talk about just brutal, horrific murders is that a lot of them are able to just go and do something casual or even fun after doing that horrific murder. Yeah. Right? Some of them have gone and got food. Mm Mm-hmm. And are able to just eat like nothing happened or, yeah, attend parties. It's just fucking wild. Yeah. Yeah, I know. We've had cases before we've talked about the person like eating food in the victim's home before leaving. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? Mm -hmm. And actually, when we talked about John List, he actually he murdered his wife, then cleaned everything up and then had lunch at the table where he murdered her. Yeah. Fucking wild. So Andrew Gustafsson had been trying to get a hold of his wife all afternoon. And as an another just extra terrifying note, one of the reasons why he was probably a little bit worried when he didn't hear from her was because she was pregnant. Aww. So he came home from work early because he was worried and he found his wife dead in their bed. And it was apparently like a very gruesome scene. Yeah. He ran from the house and called police. And after they arrived, law enforcement found the children. Andrew would later say that he left and called the police because he was afraid he was going to find his kids dead and just like couldn't. Which, can you imagine losing your whole family like that? Like, so fucking heartbreaking. Yeah. So, when police were searching the property, they noticed that the Gustafsons' nameplate was missing from the front of their home. And, again, as they're searching, they found a wet blue flannel and gloves behind the house. And they believed that they were actually worn during the murders because, one, they were still wet but also because wrapped inside the shirt was that nameplate that was missing. Law enforcement used dogs to help track the scent from those gloves and the shirt, and that brought them four feet from LaPlante's house. And when they went to talk to him, LaPlante fled. The next day, he broke into two homes, and he tried to break into a third home. During the spree, he stole a thirty-two caliber revolver. He also kidnapped Pamela McKella at gunpoint at her home. 
He forced Pamela to drive him in her van. And while they were driving, she jumped out of the van. And LaPlante continued on with her van. Eventually, someone saw LaPlante and reported him to police. Two days after the murders, he was found hiding in a dumpster in air. And what an appropriate place to find garbage. Yeah, absolutely. When they searched him, they found the loaded 32 caliber revolver in his underwear and extra bullets in his right shoe. That seems like a very dangerous place to store a loaded gun. Very strange. Does it not? Yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the evidence that they found. They found one of Abigail's hairs on LaPlante's sock when he was found in the dumpster. Sperm was found on the bedspread and in a portion of a condom that was found beside the bed. The sock that LaPlante used to gag Priscilla was found in the closet. Police also found a nearly full bottle of beer that had come from the Gustafsson's fridge. They also found several pages ripped from a pornographic magazine in the kitchen trash can. Bizarre. Very bizarre. Also, police later confirmed that the gun that was used to murder Priscilla was one of the firearms that was stolen from the Pindell home. So interestingly, the gun was found on April 7th of 1988 by Stephen LaPlante and Michael Pulowski in the glove compartment of one of the abandoned vehicles on the LaPlante property. I find it a little weird that they were like, we should go look in all the glove compartments. Knowing that the property was like filled with them, I wonder if they were just like buzzing around like, I wonder if it's here somewhere. Yeah, or maybe they hung out in some of the cars. So they confirmed the shirt in the woods was worn during the crime by showing the fibers from the shirt were found on various things like other clothing worn by LaPlante during the murders, including his socks, on a belt that was recovered with the murder weapon, and three different places at the murder scene. Woof. So in 1988, LaPlante was convicted on three counts of murder and sentenced to a life sentence for each murder. During his trial, the primary theory for the defense was that the evidence didn't prove that Daniel LaPlante committed the crimes. Rather, it just proved that someone who lived at the LaPlante home committed them. In many different ways, he had connections, though, that some of his other family members really didn't. Look, you have to have some sort of defense, and they were doing their best. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Specifically, the defense suggested that Michael Pulowski was the perpetrator. Hmm. So I want to point out that during the Bowen family stalking and harassment, he was 16. For the Gustafsson murders, he was 17. So 16 and 17, when he committed these crimes, he was tried as an adult and convicted, despite the fact that he was a juvenile, which I feel like is very reasonable considering the fucked up shit he was doing. Whether he waited a year to when he was 18, it's just as fucking bad. Well, and it's still a pattern for him, though, right? Like he was out on bail and then did something again, but just it escalated. Pretty soon after LaPlante was convicted, he began to sue the courts for violating his rights. And he did this for decades. At one point, he argued that he was facing religious discrimination because he was a Satanist and was being denied materials to perform satanic rites. And I just want to point out that this was the only part of the entire research that I saw anything about satanic rites. So some sources say that he was actually Wiccan and that's what the materials were for. This discussion of satanic rites here with the overlap of, of Wiccan practice is the only time we saw Satan being brought up in this. And this was in the 1980s, the late 80s. So I am shocked that there was not some satanic panic element. Yeah, well, they had other evidence. They didn't have to rely on that. That's probably why. Because 
they had other evidence. But even still, like, we know that in these cases, how they were convicting people was that sometimes they were proving the satanic element. They didn't even need to prove some of the murder elements. If they could prove the satanic portion of it, Mm -hmm. it would have been easier to get him away quicker. They wouldn't have even needed all this forensic evidence if there had been some sort of like satanic element. And we know from other cases we've talked about that music that the person listens to or the color of the clothing they're wearing, who they hang out with, the style of jeans they wear, things that are that innocuous can be tied to what people are considering like a dangerous religion at that time. So I just think it's really fascinating that that's not even brought up here. I mean, it's a good thing because I think that the satanic panic is garbage. But I just thought it was really interesting that it never was discussed that I can see. So unfortunately, Andrew Gustafsson died in 2014. And on his deathbed, he said, don't ever let him out. He should rot in prison. He should. So this case was up for resentencing in 2017, which is weird because he was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences. But remember, he was a juvenile. So in 2017, there was a new law that outlawed life sentences without parole for juvenile sentences. So he was resentenced. During this, he said, I do not have the words to fully express my profound sorrow, but I am truly sorry for the harm I have caused. From the very essence of who I am, from the depth of my soul, I am sorry. I don't buy it. I don't buy it either. And neither did the forensic psychologist who reviewed him. He said that he didn't believe that LaPlante was remorseful. So the judge affirmed the three consecutive life sentences. And after this, he shouldn't have been eligible for parole for another 45 years. However, in 2019, he was allowed to ask for parole because yet another new law was passed that said that people who were convicted for these life sentences who were juveniles when the crime was committed could seek parole after they had spent 25 to 30 years in prison. However, he was denied again because he didn't show any remorse. And so there he sits still in fucking prison where he should be. Yeah. I believe that our justice system could have a rehabilitative function in our prison systems and that it's possible and that if you serve your time, you should be able to like come out and live a life. But I do not think that he is a person that should ever be released from prison. No. These crimes are fucking awful. And just the shit he was doing even before he murdered the Gustafsson family. So fucking heinous. Yes. Yes. It's another level of just fucked upness. So normally we end these episodes with what do you think? We're assuming you probably think very similar to us, which is fuck Daniel LaPlante. Yeah. If you have any other true crime cases that you want us to cover that are a little bit lesser known, let us know. We try not to cover some of the ones that have been talked about a lot because we don't want to just talk just to talk for things that already exist in the world. No, we want to talk about ketchup. The important topics (laughs) and gag about mayo. But yeah, let us know if you have other cases. We're always into it. We have a shiny new website. So there's a spot you can request things on there or ask questions about cases. Like say there's a true crime case that we've covered and you're like, I wonder this thing. Ask Mm -hmm. us. Also, a few episodes ago, I put out a very kind and wide reaching offer that if you need help removing cat pee smell and cleaning up cat pee, I will help you. And I need to know that somebody did reach out and ask. And I was like, I am the woman for you. So also, we have a date. That is approaching. We do. And that is if you plan on joining our Patreon as a Fire Yeti, you want to enroll yourself before September 15th so that you can get our annual custom fall card. And the last two years have been fantastic. So 
you're going to want the scar. Yeah. <laughs> I would say this might be a little less than humble, but I would say that they are frameable. I have one of the the first one in a frame in my entryway right now. Yeah. Perfect. Invite folks into your home. The second one I have in front of me. And to creep with you at the same time. Perfect. Look at it daily, all the time. I do. I do look at it all the time. Good. Uh, we also have our listener stories episode coming up, which will be our third anniversary in early October. There's a place on our website as well. If you want to submit a story that is yours or someone else's with their permission, you can either record it yourself or you can send it to us in a text version and we can read it for you. But we love hearing your voices. And this way you can be a part of the show. And with that, have a great weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. And as always, a special thank you to our patrons who support us via Patreon. Please see the link in our show notes to learn more about how you, yes, you, can begin to haunt the dump, guard vortexes, or even become a scorching Sasquatch. Also in our show notes, you can find the link to our website, more information on our sources, our social media handles, and our merch store. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps and or ghosts. I beg of you. (laughs) Of is that there's no reason for me to believe this. It's not like my parents were like prejudice against ketchup growing up. But like my brother and I, as adults, were just like out to breakfast once. Ben was there and he asked the waitress for ketchup. I already been judging him for years at this point. And my brother goes, what do you need that for? And like also begins to judge him for his use of ketchup. We basically found that we through this interaction, we realized that we both had the same prejudice towards ketchup. How weird. I wonder why. Wild. Yeah, it's just and it was like fully independent of each other that we didn't know the other one was also weird like that. Is it just for a weird placement of ketchup or just in general? Like if someone dips their fries? Fries are acceptable. Okay. It's acceptable like on like burgers and hot dogs. Like No, it makes a mushy bun. But that's like everyone has their own preference for hot dogs and hamburgers. These are appropriate venues though. Like where one could use it. Okay. In Lindsay's head. Okay. Right. Yeah. No. Fully. <laughs> ketchup Serena right here. Uh but but not though. Anti ketchup Serena. Um I'm trying to think if there's anything else that's acceptable. No, I can't think of anything. (laughs) But I don't I I don't know where I was going. But if you're pro ketchup, I don't want to know. Okay, okay. I mean, I don't like it either way. Strong feelings. The the smell of it grosses me out. I don't know why. Another one, I I hate ranch with a passion. Love it. Like the smell of it makes me want to (laughs) vomit. And can I tell you a ketchup conspiracy? I can't do it. Oh, absolutely. You can. So, <laughs> okay. So is this, a, look, we're talking about ketchup. So I feel like this is episode proper. This doesn't have to be at the end, but we'll see what we see. Oh. Um. So it is possible that some restaurants will buy Heinz ketchup and then refill it with like insert bulk food provider off-brand ketchup, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Heinz started making their labels with the color that the ketchup should be. And on the labels, it says something like, this is Heinz brand. You can tell it's real if it's this. Oh. To fucking color match. Because they were like, no, no, no. You can't buy our bottles once and fill it with junk. Weird. That's just interesting, right? 
Well, for someone that has like food allergies or something, you could kill someone that way. <laughs> like if they had like a crazy allergy to something that's added to the different brand and they only can use a specific brand. Exactly. Yeah, you could. That's that's frightening. All I keep thinking about is the TikToks I keep seeing. I don't eat ketchup. I don't know why they're coming up, but it's saying... Are you on ketchup talk? I am hoping that my phone is not listening because I don't want to be on ketchup talk. It's just food and weird things that are in foods. I've been really like thinking about what we purchase and trying not to get stuff with a bunch of shit in it because everything here has shit in it. But it was talking about... Well, also, like, it's so hot there that produce likely goes bad quicker. So it's like, that's even harder there. That first apartment that I had that was on the top floor in the summertime, everything fucking overripened immediately and my fridge broke. So it was either frozen or like rotting and there was no in between. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's what happens when you live in hell. But it was more like the additives in ketchup here versus even Canada. And it was like the ingredients in Canada is like tomatoes and like two other things that are you could read it. You understood what it was. And then here the ingredients list is like three inches long of just weird shit. Do you know what that is? Because we don't give a fuck. Well, in America, we actually have like really, really lax restrictions on food additives and and even coloring. Yeah. That's outlawed everywhere. There's like red and blue food dyes that are outlawed literally everywhere else in the world that they've like shown can like exacerbate different like mental things that can like fuck with people's health, have like proven results of being not great. And the United States is like, but it makes money. But it's cheap. Mm hmm. And it'll make us more money in our pockets. And you guys will die faster and it'll be fine. Yeah. I think that sometimes I'm literally, like, in America, we are literally just consumers. No, we're just, like... Trash goblins? Oh. (laughs) We're not treated like citizens. We're treated like consumers. And that is, like, our only value is to consume. Yes. Mm -hmm. And to generate money for people so they can sell us things. Mm -hmm. That got dark. No, uh, this now this has to be at the end. But no, it was like, oh, well, part of it can be at the end. Part (laughs) of it can be episode proper. That's what I'm calling it, by the way. Episode proper. Okay, I think that's good. That's what we'll say. Um, No, they were saying like, I've been watching way too many. This is where I'm at is the people that make the weird additives that really shouldn't be in food. A lot of the companies that own those companies also own the pharmaceutical company. Mm -hmm that treats for that specific ailment once you get it because you ate too much of that. Mm-hmm. That sounds right. See what I'm saying there? And then they're like, oh, if I can't get you here anymore, I could get you later. I found a very interesting TikTok where a guy was talking about like common brands that we know and the other things that they do and that like most common brands do other things. Yes. Is it the guy that takes a picture of the aisle and then says who owns each brand? No, this person was talking about, oh, there's like a stadium that's like the ball stadium. And they were like, how do they afford like their jars? They don't have stadium money. And then they like joked about their, their involvement in the military. And then they found out that ball actually makes satellites. Mm-hmm. But also there's other things like Roomba is like in the war business as well. Interesting. Interesting. But anyway, let's let's get back. Have you ever been burglarized, by the way? I've had a car broken into. And I, when I was younger, we had our house almost broken into. But luckily, our dog stopped it. 
they jumped the fence and bit the person. <laughs> Good dog. Good dog. Yeah. The first apartment that I lived in, we came home and this was like a fourth floor walk up with a fire escape. Oh my gosh, how inconvenient to break in. And the window to the fire escape on the inside, there was like a wrought iron bar system because it was it was in the city. It was really old. So from the inside, it was difficult to open. So keep that in mind. So we came home and the person who I used to live with was, among other things, one of the things they did was obsessively check the doors before we left. So like our door was never left unlocked on accident. Yeah. We got home. I don't know why, but I, I turned the knob before putting the key in and it was unlocked. And the late, great Harry P. Winston was a mama's boy through and through from the beginning. When I would come home, he would greet me at the door. Yeah. And would be like telling me about his day. And he didn't come to the door. And I was like, something's wrong because he wasn't there. And we had Sookie and Lenore at that point, too. And they were all under a year old. So I walked into the apartment and I looked into the bedroom and that window was open. And so was that wrought iron gate. But it didn't really feel like a thing that a person could open from the outside. And we kept that window locked. You might be picking up that I think that somebody who had a key to our apartment perhaps owned the building broke in and stole some things because there were some shady like maintenance people who had access to keys. But the window is open. So, of course, I'm like screaming like a crazy person trying to find my cats because I'm afraid that they've gone down the fire escape. Yeah. And like they hid because I was like panicked and it was probably like, Ugh. but like I also think that perhaps like Harry as the sweet boy he was, he probably greeted the person at the door, no matter who it was. He's like, hey, welcome to my house. I would like to think that the burglar was kind because no need to be rude to a cat. Yeah. And like stuff was moved. It was clear that they were like looking for money. They stole like, do you remember what a netbook was? Like a tiny little laptop. Do you remember those? They were like, I don't know, iPad size, but it was a full laptop. Oh, I don't know. This was 2009-ish. And so like that was gone. They stole our Wii. They stole some money I had in the bedroom. Cats were fine. I remember I wasn't able to sleep in our apartment after that because I just felt so violated. And this was a situation where people just came and took stuff and left. So I can't even imagine how violating this would feel if somebody was like in there, like slightly moving my furniture and shit. Yeah. Yeah, completely. It's more like when you said mind game, it makes sense, like just little bits, because I don't know if I would really notice, you know, little moves, at least for a while, unless it happened again and again. I think it would depend on it what it was. Yeah, yeah. Ben positioned our TV very purposefully in our living room and our couch. I've moved that couch back and forth 3,000 times because I'm like trying to get a cat or I've dropped something behind it. It's been wiggled around. So like where it actually sits in the room specifically, anyone's guess. But the TV being moved, I think Ben would know immediately. Oliver does such weird shit all the time. I'd blame him. <laughs> I mean, Fair. With the exception of that one TV, I don't think anything else I would notice if it was moved. Please don't break into my house and move things. I'll be really upset and I will not be okay. Right. Please don't. Please don't. Well, one of my friends used to break in when we were gone. Like she had a key though. So not break in, but she would come in and leave trinkets. I think I've already said that on the show, but she'd leave things for me to find later. <laughs> what? No, you did not. What the fuck? Wait, let's back up. Let's back up. Yes. When you say trinkets, I don't know why, but the word trinket in this context makes me wildly uncomfortable. Does this person's name begin with an M? It sure does. Okay, so this is a person who at one point lived with you, who had a key to your house, who you like trusted with your child. Yes, yes. A person who you trusted through and through. This was not like a 
Yeah, not a rando or a weird person. No, no, no. Like a casual friend. This wasn't like a new friend who's like, I brought you a present. <laughs> no, but our favorite thing to do would be go going to um resale shops and finding those like dumb, just catch dust things that people buy. Knickknacks, tchotchkes. You know, like the the kids with like the giant eyes that just say dumb things on their little plaque. Precious moments? Not precious moments, but similar. Oh, where there's like... Oh, I know what you're talking about, where they're like, it's like them in lots of activities. Kind of. But we bought one and it has these giant eyes and it's like a statue. It's like this big. And it says, I don't know why this is the unit of measurement, but I would say a fourth of a 12-year-old boy. A f- eighth. Oh, a fourth of a 12-year-old boy. No, it's definitely less than a fourth of a 12-year-old boy. I was going to say the size of a Funko Pop box. Like I have that many of them. But I would also say a family style can of soup. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and it says, I miss you. M-I-T-H. It's very frightening. And uh, I came home one day to that in my fridge. How fascinating. Oh, that's perfect. No, that's that's quality. Yeah, no, that's quality. So that's our game. But we'll hide it in each other's homes when the other's not there sometimes. Sometimes we're there and it's not as funny, but it's even better when they don't know that you visited. Well, this person also lives in a different state now. So like the potential for how terrifying this can be is really like ratcheted up, which by the way, uh, is Mike, this is at the end, so it doesn't really matter. Um, Has Mike gotten anything in the mail recently? No. Is he going to? Oh, gosh. No. no, I don't think it has my name on it. You'll know it when you see it. Please, if he gets something in the mail that looks like it is, it says his name. Because I didn't put anything else because I didn't yeah. want him to know it was from me. Because typically we'll put Michael Mednansky Molasses or like Mr. Molasses mm-hmm. on stuff so that this way we know when it's a gift for or so when they know it's a gift for themselves. Which is an old school story from this. Yes, I know. And and Amanda getting a true what, like gallon, two gallon thing of molasses from Ben. I don't remember why he did that. Because I said that if we had molasses in our house, the whole house would be sticky forever oh so he was like because of ollie jokes on you let me help you but please take a video okay of him opening this because it's gonna be in an envelope okay okay he normally checks the mail too so that's good i saw it and was like immediately yes like i'm i mean i don't often immediately buy things off of etsy i don't mean like i don't know this i was like yes we need it oh gosh it's, i can't wait no children here though so it's gotta be <laughs> ghost. ghost. <laughs> 